0: Acts chapter 2, as we continue in our fresh series through the book of Acts, which we've themed as the advance of the kingdom. It's a great book about the Holy Spirit, but it's not the biggest theme. It's a great book about the church, but it's not the biggest theme. It's the advance of the kingdom of God by the Spirit in his church that should excite us this morning. Now, to set the table for coming to our text, we remember the disciples are facing a crisis. If Jesus is leaving them for good, they feel like they're in a lot of trouble. They've, they've tried this following of Jesus and it hasn't been a perfect process yet. You can think of the time they come down. I think it was from the Mount of Transfiguration and some of the disciples in the absence of Jesus, we're trying to heal someone, and when Jesus shows up, they're like, "Why couldn't we do this?" And Jesus exhorts them to faith and prayer and fasting. But they got a taste of this thought that if Jesus is gone, can we really carry on this ministry? They weren't sure how to follow Jesus if he was gone. Oh, they they knew how to be afraid. They knew how to doubt. They knew how to love themselves by arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They knew how to fail. They had all forsaken him and fled in the garden. And then Peter had added to that his threefold denial. So when we hear the angels in Acts chapter 1 asking them, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? The Bible doesn't give us their answer. But I would think at least in part they're thinking, how is this going to work without Jesus? You and I may face a similar concern, if not a crisis, We, too, know how to settle for lukewarm discipleship. We know how to be selfish spouses. We know how to be short-sighted parents. We know how to be disrespectful children. We know how to fear and how to fail. But how do you follow Jesus in a way that advances the kingdom? I don't know if we have that in us. So like the disciples here in Acts 2, we now need a power that is promised to make this whole Christian life possible. To follow Jesus as Lord, to be his witnesses, to advance his kingdom. I don't know that it hurts us to feel like the disciples Inadequate. It simply reminds us that we too need the Spirit's power for our mission. And so we come to our text finding hope. Here is our hope. The theme of our study this morning is this that God gives the Spirit to empower His witnesses to advance His kingdom. It's as if we are finally to this chapter that we know so well. We we heard Jesus promise the Spirit. We heard John the Baptist say, it's coming. Jesus will baptize you with the Spirit. Chapter 1 set the table for it, and now it's finally here. And our text begins by telling us that the day of Pentecost had arrived. But this morning, I want to try to clear away maybe some of the confusion about Pentecost I don't know what you have in your mind when you hear Pentecost. Maybe you think that's a term that was kind of made up for this event. But I want us to see that Pentecost was a well-established Jewish feast that just took on a New New Testament fulfillment. Pentecost isn't primarily about speaking in languages. It's not primarily about wonderful signs. It's about God giving his spirit to empower his witnesses to do kingdom work. That theme helps us understand that though we're looking at an ancient story, a narrative account of something that happened a long time ago, there's something here for us today. God's spirit still empowers God's witnesses to advance God's kingdom. So let's study Acts chapter 2. At least the beginning of the story, we'll look at Peter's message, Lord willing, next week. But to guide our study, I want us to ask and answer this question. What makes Pentecost so significant? What makes Pentecost so significant? In the text, I want to show you five experiences, five things that were felt and lived through that unfold the significance of Pentecost, five experiences that the followers of Jesus experienced in that day, but they're also five experiences that followers of Jesus still experience today. So each experience is a history of the days gone by, but each experience is also the hope for our days ahead this week. So how do we make this bridge in understanding Pentecost? The first experience that unfolds the significance of this event on the day of Pentecost is number one, the building of God's church The building of God's church. To understand this, we need to understand what the text means when it gives us a time stamp when the day of Pentecost arrived. We need to know what this day of Pentecost is all about. So, to be clear, the day of Pentecost existed long before the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. All right? You see, there were three main feasts in Jewish culture that involved a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The first one was the Feast of Passover. In that feast, it was a celebration of God's redemption of his people from Egypt. On the heels of that feast was the Feast of fruits. This was a celebration of God's provision. And they would remember the wilderness days when God provided clean water, when he provided meat, when he provided manna, he met their needs. The third pilgrimage feast was the Feast of Booths. This was a celebration of God's presence with his people. Whether they were in Egypt, whether they wandered in the wilderness and tents, whether it was in their permanent promised homeland and the inheritance there, God was with his people. And for those 40 years in the wilderness, they remembered the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The presence of God was celebrated. Well, we zoom in on the Feast of Firstfruits. That feast came 50 days after the Feast of Passover. 50 days The word Pentecost simply means 50th. It was the 50th day, but it was a fun, significant day, a day of celebration. So the 50th meant something. Much like in our culture, when we hit the month of July, we just have to say the 4th. And we know what we mean by that. In that is all of this history of independence, the founding of our nation, and everything that means. And we call it the fourth. Well, they had a feast and they called it the 50th because it was 50 days after Passover. So the feast of first fruits was also called the feast of Pentecost or the feast of the 50th day. Now, interesting, it was also called the feast of weeks because the Jews often numbered time in sevens. So seven days in a week, seven sevens or seven weeks would be 49 days. And then on the 50th was the celebration. So you had to wait for seven sevens. Therefore, this was also called the Feast of Weeks. So if you're reading through Leviticus, you might see that language. Just know those weeks were the seven weeks you had to wait between one great feast, Passover, and the next great feast, Firstfruits or Pentecost. Now, why does that matter to us? Right? Most of you don't observe the Jewish calendar. So why do these feasts matter and why is this day of Pentecost significant to our story? The story we know, the pouring out of the Spirit, according to the prophecy of Joel, beginning of the church. We know this, but what does it mean that it happened on this celebration of the 50th, the celebration of Pentecost, the celebration of first fruits. And this is where we find this first experience of the building of the church. First fruits is a simple description of the first harvest of the season. The first of the crops were picked, but they weren't put into the storehouse They weren't saved for seed for future planting. The very first harvest of any crop was given to the Lord as an expression of thanks for his provision and as a statement of faith. Because you have just begun to harvest what you need to live on and you're giving it back to the Lord. So you now have nothing except the promise that god will be faithful to provide more in the harvest you see the first of first the feast of first fruits was the gathering of that first harvest given to the lord in expression of thanksgiving and an expression of faith that a greater harvest was yet to come there's the key the first fruits came with the expectation of a fuller harvest to come. When God pours out his spirit and further announces the gospel of Jesus Christ through Peter's preaching, we're told that thousands come to faith. And we look back through history and we say, here's the beginning of what we call the church. And yet that's not the greatest news of the text. The greatest news is that was but the first fruits and the harvest continues. And Peter's Letter to the church says God is still long-suffering and not willing that any of that harvest goes unharvested. He's going to bring all his sheep into the fold and all of his harvest into the barn. The harvest continues still today. So give the gospel to your coworker, believing that Pentecost was but the first fruits of the harvest to come. Keep praying for grandma to be saved. Keep witnessing to that neighbor of yours. Why? Because Pentecost reminds us that that dramatic experience was but the first fruits of the continual victory of the kingdom as it advances one heart at a time. Take heart, Christian, in your witness. God says, I will pour out my spirit and show you the first fruits on the day of first fruits so that you will always have in your mind that when thousands came to faith in Jesus at once, it was a drop in the bucket. And God is going to continue sweeping sinners into the kingdom. At Pentecost, God was building his church and those disciples experienced it. But so do we as we witness to the saving power of Jesus. The second experience was the wonder of God's presence. The wonder of God's presence. This is seen in two dramatic signs, again, that were experienced. Pentecost was a sensual experience, not sensual in our common usage of bad, but literally involving the senses. A rushing wind fills the entire house and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That's all we're told. Divided tongues of fire, so like a lapping flame, but divided amongst all of them, which is unique because the fire of the Old Testament presence of God was usually in one dramatic showing, and now it's divided amongst every individual, showing us how this pouring of the Spirit was going to occur. These two signs, the rushing wind and the tongues of fire, steer us to thoughts of God's presence. In Genesis 1, We read of the Spirit of God, which in both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek is the same word, wind or spirit or breath. And in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God or the wind of God hovered and and blew over the unformed earth. It's the wind of Ezekiel 37 that blows in the valley of the dry bones bringing flesh and sinews to the bones of those skeletons and and bringing them to life. It's in John 3, what Nicodemus learns of the Spirit's work and the picture of the wind blowing through the trees. The wind pictures that surrounding, enveloping presence of God. The wind blew, and then the Divided tongues of flaming fire appeared and settled on each disciple. We go back to Genesis 15, as God made his covenant with Abraham. The covenant that would usually be sealed by two men walking through those divided animals that would be sacrificed. But instead of two men walking through, it was the furnace of God's burning that passed through. Fire, the presence of God, representing all of his holiness and his faithful character in exodus 3 moses encounters god at the burning bush in exodus 13 god protects his people from the egyptians and then goes on to lead his people through the wilderness with this pillar of fire that they would see and perhaps feel the glow and be reminded that god is with us Exodus 19, when God is going to make it clear that this people would belong to him and he would be their God, to make his presence known, he shook Mount Sinai with an earthquake and with thunder and with fire that fell on that mountain, the text tells us. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist said that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Hebrews 10 reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. So we should not be surprised by a rushing wind and a flame of fire when God in a unique moment in human history was wanting to make his presence known. And this this would be a kind of side study to dive into the Trinitarian weight of the presence of God in these visible signs of wind and fire, but it's the Holy Spirit that is present, reminding us that our God is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet they are all God with us. God has called you as a believer, to be his witness. And that's not some vague general calling that you'll take up someday. That's today where you might go. And throughout this week, he's called you to spread his fame, to help others to know and to follow Jesus. Remember, that command comes to us with his promise to be with us. When Jesus uttered that Commission, as we call it. He said, all authority is given to me. Go and make disciples, and I am with you to the end of the age. What did he mean by that? Acts 2 is telling us God would be with us in the form of his Holy Spirit poured out so that we would never stand alone in the witness box testifying to Jesus and his saving work. We stand there with our God. You feel alone in those conversations when the words don't come easily, but remember, God is with you. That's why the wind blew and the tongues of fire appeared. Those were just tangible confirmations of the great reality of the presence of God that goes unseen. But by faith, we will advance the kingdom side by side with our Emmanuel, God with us. There's a third experience of Pentecost, the filling by God's spirit. These signs appear, the rushing wind, the flaming tongues of fire. And then the text gets to the real significance when it says in verse 4, they were filled With the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Rushing wind was pretty cool, but it wasn't the most spectacular event of the day. Tongues of fire resting on their heads or shoulders was not even the most meaningful occurrence of the day. Those were temporary signs, really cool, but really temporary. Those temporary signs pointed to the permanent reality that the Spirit had been poured out. And notice the language, there's the pouring out and there's the filling up. They go together in this kind of inaugural display of this new means of God being with us. It wouldn't be in the incarnate Son. He came and then He ascended, But he said, I'll send another like me to be with you. And here it is the Holy Spirit is being poured out into believers and they are filled up. That's the reality of Pentecost. We may not encounter rushing wind in our worship gatherings or evangelism efforts, we may not speak in other languages miraculously or see flaming tongues of fire. But we have the reality. Why long for the sign? When the substance is ours, we are filled with the Holy Spirit upon faith in Jesus Christ. This pouring out of the Spirit was for all who believed, and it was evident in yet another sign. These Spirit-filled disciples, it says, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now these are human languages. Verses 8 through 11 make that clear. It's not gibberish. The utterance of verse 4, the Spirit gave them utterance, is defined in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So be clear in Acts 2 that If your Bible says tongues, it's languages. And we're told which dialects and which people groups would understand those languages in those verses. Now, we could use this as some argument in Corinthians about what tongues would be. But that argument aside, fairness to this text is clear. The miracle was common Galileans spoke in other languages. And those people that knew those languages immediately perked up and thought, how is that possible? This sign confirmed that indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to make us witnesses, connect all the dots, flaming tongues of fire, the pouring out of the Spirit so that they can speak in languages. But The the great sign is not, oh, wow, they can speak another language. It's they will be witnesses and nothing will hinder their witness when empowered by the Spirit. You say, well, they don't know that language. What is that to God? That's the point of the text. It's that, that there was no barrier here to your witness. Do not say there's a hindrance, a barrier. There's something that is keeping you from being a witness when the power of God is behind you and nothing, even in our minds, what seems impossible, nothing can stop the advance of the kingdom. This is what Jesus said would happen. The gates of hell cannot withstand the onslaught of the kingdom. So we rejoice. We find hope. This power for witness isn't just some theory It's the reality, and apparently common Galileans needed to know this as much as all these people that were visiting Jerusalem needed to know it. Peter needed to know that if he's called to be a witness and God said, I will empower you, God was serious about this. And if it meant speaking another language, fine, let's do that. And God made that possible. We cannot underestimate the scriptures when it tells us we will receive power to be witnesses. Apparently from this text, the only thing that can thwart the witness is disobedience. Because there's just no obstacle. Your brain and your tongue can be controlled by the spirit to speak another language. But is your heart yielded? when you're summoned, subpoenaed, called to take the stand, are you going to refuse? That seems to be the only question of the text because it's labored to show us that there is just nothing that can stop the power of the truth of what Jesus can do for sinners. The filling of God's spirit. It enables you to be a witness to his great works. Their utterance, their speaking was about the mighty works of God. You are filled with the Spirit. And I know that's a sign, Ephesians 1 says, a seal of your redemption. But think of it this way from our text. You are filled with the Holy Spirit to make God look good. That's why he poured out his Spirit on you so that when you utter things, it's making him look like a mighty, wonderful God. So what did the filling of the Spirit accomplish in your life this week? How many people were reminded that God is mighty and can do great things because you're filled with the Spirit? The Spirit gave them utterance. They heard the mighty works of God. Rejoice in this filling of God's Spirit this week. Make much of Him. Think much of Him as you meditate on the week of his suffering and his death, so that we can gather next week, Lord willing, and bask in the joy of the resurrection. Briefly note the fourth experience of Pentecost, the certainty of God's word. In verse 12, we read, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Clearly, our hope cannot even be in miraculous displays of power or authority for the conversion of sinners. If that were the ultimate need, then God would empower all of us to constantly work miracles to wow people into the kingdom of God. But that's just not the way we're told for entering the kingdom. It comes through repentance and faith. Should God give those signs that help some, then that's his prerogative. But clearly, even the signs and wonders of this day of Pentecost were not sufficient to bring about immediate faith. Some are mocking and they're saying these guys must be drunk. Peter stands up in verse 14 and begins to speak. He quickly dismisses their objection regarding drunkenness. It's only the third hour of the day. We would measure this from 6 a.m. So this is 9 o'clock in the morning and Peter's saying there's no feast where anybody's drunk that soon. You know that. So let's put that aside. And get to the real meaning. Verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And we'll look some more at how this unfolds uh, as he cites the book of Joel in coming weeks, but I want us to just draw a line between verse 12, the asking of, what does this mean? And Peter's response, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Or to make it even simpler, whatever question we're asked as believers, we respond with, this is what God has said. You know, we think we have to have every nuanced argument for abortion, for race conflict, for transgenderism, And you say, well, I don't know my biology well enough to argue every point of all those arguments. I don't know history of our nation enough or all the issues on the... You don't need to. I would encourage you to pursue biblical truth as it applies so that you have good arguments. But take heart. You can start with what God has said. And amazingly... Most of those issues I referenced, our men have studied through now just by reading the first couple chapters of Genesis. Somebody wants to talk about racial conflict, take them to Genesis and show them man made in God's image. They want to talk about abortion, how many trimesters and at what stage this or that or when is a heart beating or when is there blood. You might not have all those arguments, but you can take them back to Genesis and say, Man is made in the image of God. You want to deal with transgender issues? You have an answer. God made man in his image, male and female. He created them. And this is good. This is in the language of God blessing, creating, and saying everything is very good. That's a a compassionate message of hope. It's not antagonistic, it's not even arrogant. You're just saying, this is what God says. Peter stood up at Pentecost, not with a vast seminary degree and incredible arguments. He simply said, this is what Joel the prophet said. God told us this already. He said he would do this. And now a good and faithful God is keeping his promise. I simply want you to see that pattern. People ask us questions about what they see in this world or in our lives, and we need to have an answer. We fall short of making the glory of God known. We sin when we don't have an answer that the Bible says this. They may not like the answer. They may not agree with it. We see that in the text. Some mocked and some were amazed, and at the end, some believed but we're not in charge of the result. We're in charge of giving an answer for the hope that is within us. Finally, see that these disciples experienced the invitation of God's salvation. Joel has a lot to say, and there's a lot to think on there about being in the last days, about these signs being fulfilled in either the crucifixion, the resurrection, or now at Pentecost. But Peter ends the message of Joel with these words, and it shall come to pass. When Joel said that, he was saying, there's a day when this is going to be really evident to you. It was true in the Old Testament. If you call on the name of the Lord, you're saved. It's true in the New Testament. you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But as we'll soon see in Acts, that calling on the name of the Lord suddenly took on a little more definition. When the apostles would stand and say, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. You must see Jesus as the rescuer. You must see Jesus as the hope of rescue from sin and the hope of eternal heaven with God. we could nuance with Bible verses the meaning of calling on the name of the Lord because many of you know, well, we should talk about repentance. We should. We should better unfold faith. Yes, we can from the scriptures. But let's just think simply as the text does here in this passage. Those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in this room this morning, there are those who have called on the name of the Lord and there are those who have not. There are those who have believed on Jesus as the rescuer from sin and there are those who have not believed that and have not been rescued. Peter's point would be, in any audience then, there are those who are saved and there are those who are dying in their sins. Peter's question, and mine today is, which are you? So children, have you called on the name of Jesus for rescue from your sin? Teenagers, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Adults, maybe having been in church for decades. You can't be good enough to please God. You've sinned. But Jesus will give you his righteousness, forgiveness of your sins, and eternal life. Have you called on the name of the Lord? The invitation is simple call on the name of the Lord and be saved. This is all that these witnesses will do through the book of Acts. Go from place to place saying, here's what Jesus has done. Call on him to save you. Your gods can't do it. Your Judaism can't do it. You need Jesus. Joel said it centuries ago. The apostles said it. And we still say it today. When the world asks or needs to know what they must do to be saved, we tell them, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that beautiful. It's that hopeful. So have you done it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can experience the building of your church Thank you that we can experience your presence, the filling of your spirit, the faithfulness of your word, and thank you that we still hear the call of salvation ringing out to every nation. (laughs) Would you open the eyes of anyone here today who is blinded by their own sin, and by your mercy, give them a voice to call on your name for salvation. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your plan to redeem, your plan to sanctify, and your plan to lead us all the way home. May our lives of faithfulness reflect your glory, the glory of your kingship, the glory of your King, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.